Welcome to the teaching ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Santa Maria, California. Join our pastors as they share biblical principles of God's transforming grace so that you may learn God's word in order to live God's way. Good morning, Grace. What does the Christian life look like? What is it about? That's what we're going to see today out of the third chapter of Jonah. So please turn in your Bibles to this minor prophet that we've been looking at over the last few weeks. Let's pray before we begin. Father, thank you for your relentless grace, your stubborn grace that pursues us, chases us down when we run from you. Thank you for your patience. Thank you that you are merciful and compassionate. God, we need you now. We ask that you would empower us by your spirit, open our eyes to see wonderful things out of your word, and may we be transformed and live lives that reflect your glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. October 31, 15. 17, a monumental date in church history, the day that Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the chapel door in Wittenberg, and he did that, and when he did that, he was challenging the Roman Catholic Church to a public debate over their selling of indulgences. In fact, it was John Tetzel in particular that uh, Martin Luther was challenging. Tetzel was an unscrupulous man who was uh, very greedy. And Tetzel and some of his peers were preaching uh, that indulgences, through their indulgences that they sold, that the sinner, if they purchased their indulgence, could be cleaner than when coming out of baptism and cleaner than Adam before the fall, and that the cross of the seller of indulgences has as much power as the cross of Christ. So you could see why Luther came unglued when he was hearing these messages in Germany. Uh, those who wished to buy an indulgence for a loved one who was deceased were promised that as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. In other words, if you had a loved one who died who didn't know Jesus, you could buy an indulgence, and as soon as your coin hit the little tin and made that noise, ding, then at that moment, a soul from purgatory could spring out. Now, in his 95 Theses, one of the things that Luther does is he challenges the Pope of the day and actually says, if you can release, if you have the power to release a soul from purgatory, then why don't you just do it? Why are you charging money for this to happen? If you had the power, why are you charging money? Because he wanted to complete St. Peter's Basilica. That's why he was charging money. He wanted to finish his building project. Luther wanted to enter into a, a debate that day and defend the biblical truth of justification by God's grace alone for his glory alone, through faith alone in Christ alone. Luther that day was saying, there's nothing that you can do in and of yourselves to make yourself right with God. It's something that has to be done to you and for you through Jesus Christ. Our roots as a church go deep into what preceded the beginning of the Reformation that day on October 31, 1517, and what followed. Here at Grace, we embrace the doctrines that, that 
that were already in the church, but really the spotlight was put on again then through the Reformation. We embrace Reformed theology, the doctrines of grace. It's who we are. It's the kind of preaching you're going to hear from this pulpit. We have a high view of God's sovereignty over everything in the universe, over even your salvation, that if you are a Christian, he chose you, he elected you, he predestined you. We embrace Reformed theology here at Grace. And it's been our tradition here as well prior to my coming. But as much as we embrace the doctrines of the Reformation and as much as we would sing the praises of Martin Luther, John Calvin, Charles Spurgeon, Jonathan Edwards, John Owen, etc., how many of us have actually read the 95 theses that Martin Luther posted that day? If you haven't, that's okay. You don't have to. I don't want to make you feel bad or feel guilty. It was a pivotal moment in church history. I think you should read them. Um, But you don't have to. But let me get you started down that path in case you're interested. Here's Luther's preface and first point that he nailed to the chapel door that day. Out of love and concern for the truth and with the object of eliciting it, the following heads will be the subject of a public discussion at Wittenberg under the presidency of the Reverend Father Martin Luther, Augustinian, Master of Arts and Sacred Theology, and duly appointed lecturer on these subjects in that place. He requests that whoever cannot be present personally to debate the matter orally will do so in absence in writing. And then here's his first point. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he called for the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. That's what we're going to see today out of Jonah 3, that Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, The triune God that we serve, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are calling out to every one of those who've been justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for God's glory alone, that we would live a life of continual repentance. That repentance isn't something you do when you become a Christian, that you repented once and then you never repent again. Luther's point is that we are to live a life of continual repentance See, as we grow spiritually, we become more aware of our sin and we forsake that sin. Isn't that true for some of you mature believers? You probably realize you're more of a sinner now than when you first trusted in Christ because you begin to see the darkness of your heart, that there is sin in your heart even after you become a Christian. Here's what Tim Keller says about Luther's first point. On the surface, this looks a little bleak. Luther seems to be saying that Christians will never make much progress in life. That, of course, wasn't Luther's point at all. He was saying that repentance is the way we make progress in the Christian life. Indeed, pervasive, all-of-life repentance is the best sign that we are growing deeply and rapidly into the character of Jesus. In religion... The purpose of repentance is basically to keep God happy so he will continue to bless you and answer your prayers. That's repentance in religion. I I, I gotta say I'm sorry so God will keep blessing me and he'll answer my prayers. That's the only reason I say it, but I gotta say I'm sorry and repent. But in the gospel, Keller says, the purpose of repentance is to repeatedly tap into the joy of our union with Christ to weaken our impulse to do anything contrary 
to God's heart. Repentance in the gospel is having that remorse of our sin and then tapping into the joy that we have been united with Jesus Christ. And when we think about all that he is for us, it weakens our impulse to do anything contrary to God's heart. So what it looks like practically is that we say, when, when you blow it, in whatever way that you blow it, and you blow it every day, right? You've already blown it this morning, some of you getting ready, right? Some of you that had kids already lost it this morning, trying to get them ready for church, didn't you? When you blow it in your life with whatever sin that you do, all of life repentance is that you say, oh God, I'm sorry, please forgive me for doing that again. But thank you for Jesus. Thank you for my Savior and all that he is for me, that his perfect life comes to me. That's all of life repentance. Our big idea today is this. Keep turning and keep trusting. Keep turning from your sin and keep trusting in Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches that disciples are called to live a continual life of faith and repentance. We are to continually repent or turn from sin and then to continually turn to Jesus and to believe and to trust that he is better than all of the shallow promises of sin. That's biblical Christianity. Turning from sin and trusting in Jesus by faith and believing all of the promises of God and all that he is for us in the gospel message. Puritan pastor Thomas Watson wrote an excellent book on repentance. I encourage you to buy it and read it. He's an easy Puritan to read. If you've read the Puritans, you know, they have like 20 commas in one paragraph. and You kind of forget where they're going. He's an easy read. I encourage you. He's, he's got the best book on repentance, I believe. Here's what he said. He said, two great graces essential to a saint in this life are faith and repentance. These are the two wings by which he flies to heaven. Faith and repentance preserve the spiritual life as heat and radical moisture do the natural. If you're to make progress in the Christian life, if you're to fly, if you will, you need faith and repentance that you are continually saying, God, forgive me of this, but God, thank you for your son. Look at verses one through two. Hear the words of the gracious God that we serve. And then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Here we have another demonstration of the relentless, stubborn grace of our God. God has pursued Jonah all the way to the belly of a great fish that had taken him to the bottom of the ocean. Jonah ran from Yahweh the Sovereign Lord, and Yahweh the Sovereign Lord in grace has pursued him. And it's grace that God's word comes a second time to Jonah. It's grace because Jonah didn't deserve to be a mouthpiece for the Lord, did he? He's a prophet. His job description is preach for the Lord, speak for him. And he said, I don't want to do that today. So he runs. But it's grace that God comes to Jonah a second time. And it's grace for Nineveh because they didn't deserve a warning. We'll read in a few moments about how wicked they were. They didn't deserve a warning because of the kind of people that they were. But God in his grace is sending Jonah to them. It's relentless grace. It's a beautiful thing 
that sinners like us get to experience. Think about it. The Lord is not holding a grudge with Jonah. The Lord is saying to Jonah, Jonah, let's start over. Let's try this again. Get up and go to Nineveh and preach the gospel. What wonderful news for sinners. We struggle to forget our past, but God seems to have no issue forgetting. We struggle to forget our past. We struggle, as we sing our songs this morning, we struggle to forget how harsh we were with our children or with our spouse or somebody in the roundabout as we were coming here or whatever. We struggle to forget that. And it hangs over us. But the God that we serve doesn't struggle. He doesn't remember. Now, He knows our sin. He can tell us every single time we've ever sinned in our life. But He doesn't deal with us based on that. Good news for sinners like us who blow it all the time. That is the gospel. So Jonah gets a do-over here. But there is a slight, small change in the way he is to preach. You cannot see it in the English, but the Hebrew changes a little letter here. The Lord's first word in chapter chapter 1, verse 2, that Jonah was to call out against Nineveh. Now there is a slight change in the Hebrew text. And even though the ESV translation that I'm using doesn't capture it, it says now call out to the city. First it was call out against it, now it's call out too. It's it's not as if the message has changed here, because the message hasn't. God has not changed. God has not changed his mind. Jonah has changed. Jonah is to bring the exact message that he originally received. He must denounce the sin of Nineveh. But the difference now is that Jonah had a fishy experience in between chapter 1 In chapter 3, Jonah experienced God's relentless, stubborn grace. He received forgiveness. He was restored. And now Jonah is capable of delivering the same message. But now his very life, and not just his words, his very life is now a message of God's relentless, transforming grace. Now Jonah could preach and say, Hey Nineveh, look at me. God gives grace to sinners who are running from him. Hey Nineveh, forgiveness and restoration are possible. Repent, Nineveh. Jonah moved from preaching against the city and now his very presence there would be a message of gospel hope to the city. Jonah's life instructs us that we must keep turning from sin when we blow it and we will blow it all day until Jesus comes back. Turning from sin and trusting in Jesus. It's the same way that we deal with our city and our co-workers and family members that don't know Jesus. We don't cry out against them. We cry out to them and say, hey, look at me. I'm a sinner like you. And God's forgiven me. And he started a transformation project in my life and a transformation process. And he can do the same for you. 
So I believe at this point in the narrative that Jonah turned from his sin and that he turned to God. He repented and now he's moving forward in faith to preach the gospel to the city of Nineveh. But keep in mind, this is grace for Nineveh. They deserve to be wiped out. It was God in his grace sending Jonah to preach to them. Look at verse 3 with me. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. We don't get any details here on what happened after Jonah was spit out onto the beach by that great fish. I think Jonah's the author. He doesn't tell us anything about that. Jonah is not interested in giving us the details. Did he take a shower after he was vomited out onto the beach? Did he change his clothes? How long did his journey to Nineveh take? Did he ride a donkey or a camel? Did he stay at the Ramada Inn? How did Jonah react as a Jew to the continental breakfast at the Ramada Inn when he saw that they served bacon and sausage? We don't get any of those details because those things aren't important. The text gives us the most important detail. Jonah obeyed the Lord. That's what matters. Jonah was a truly repentant prophet at this point. Now, if you know the story, we get to chapter 4, and he has another pity party and another meltdown, and he has heart issues. But here, he's changed. I guess hope to us, doesn't it, that when we're in the Jonah chapter 1, chapter 2 of our life, and then we repent and turn back to Jesus, it gives us hope because we know chapter 4 is coming at some point in the day in our life, right? It gives us hope. But the point here is that Jonah is demonstrating the fruit of repentance, which is obedience. So Jonah arrives at Nineveh, which was a very large city. Verse 3 implies that it would take someone three days to walk through the city because it was so large. But we know from archaeological digs that Nineveh was not that big of a city. So most likely, when the text says this, it means one of two things. It refers to Nineveh and all of its surrounding communities and villages and cities, kind of the metroplex of Nineveh, if you will. Or it just means that it took Jonah three days of preaching because he would encounter people and maybe have further conversations with them. Either way, it took Jonah three days to walk around this massive city and and, and all of its uh, smaller cities surrounding it, or it just took him three days. But here's what's so fascinating about Jonah, whichever it was, of his three days of preaching, his message. It's so short. Only five words in Hebrew. And he's included in the prophets. The prophets usually prophesy. There are long books, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, even in the minor prophets. And we only have five words of prophecy in this book. Five short words in Hebrew. The shortest sermon ever. Would you like that, a five-word sermon? Please don't say amen to that. I'm sure Jonah went on to explain more to the Ninevites. But guess what happened? After his prophecy went forth, five short words in Hebrew, 
They repented. Look, verse 5 says that they believed God. They believed Yahweh, the sovereign Lord's word through Jonah. They believed God's diagnosis of their spiritual condition. And that's what repentance is. Believing God's spiritual diagnosis of your spiritual condition and responding to it. Charles Spurgeon said, Repentance is a discovery of the evil of sin, a mourning that we have committed it, a resolution to forsake it. It is, in fact, a change of mind of a very deep and practical character, which makes the man love what he once hated and hate what he once loved. It appears here that the Ninevites believed Jonah's message because of how they respond. In fact, because the text says that they believed. Look at verse 5 again. And the people of Nineveh believed God. Now notice their response. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published it through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Notice the signs of repentance here. They call for a fast. Nobody's eating or drinking anything. Not even the animals, not their dog. Nobody's eating, not the cats, not anybody. They put on sackcloth, which was maybe like maybe a, a coarse like material like, like burlap, you know, like you, the kids do the little potato sack runs and each one puts a leg in, those that a real coarse material. And and they sat down in ashes. The, the picture here is that there's something happening in their heart and in their mind and they want to they show fruit of that in their life. They're saying, we don't want anything enjoyable, anything pleasurable. We, we want to show that, that we've been pierced to the heart. So we're, we're cutting ourselves off from all of the things that give us pleasure and that we enjoy in this life. And we're going to grieve because of our sin. And then they call out to God and they turn from their evil and violence. And then everyone, the text says, in Nineveh was involved. The people and the animals. And word spread. And KCOY did a five o'clock story on this crazy Jewish prophet who showed up who smells like uh, fish vomit. He's on the news. People are talking about it. And it says that news reached the king of Nineveh who led the way in repentance. You have to picture the king who is high, seated on his throne. And he goes down. Jonah went down in rebellion, remember? Down, down, down. The king goes down to ashes. Even the animals were included. The animals wore sackcloth. Everyone's fasting. No one's eating. No one's drinking. This was a citywide revival. They all agreed to turn from their evil ways. If you haven't been with this and maybe you missed the sermon, I've read a few times some of the historical records of some of the kings of Assyria where Nineveh was located, how violent were they? Is God justified in, in, in saying, I'm going to wipe you out if you don't repent? Listen to King Ashurnasirpal I describing his conquests. He says, I failed or I killed 50 of their fighting men with the sword, burnt 200 captives from them, and defeated in a battle on the plain 332 troops. With their blood, I dyed the mountain red like red wool. 
And the rest of them, the ravines and torrents of the mountains swallowed. I carried off captives and possessions from them. I cut off the heads of their fighters and built therewith a tower before their city. I burnt their adolescent boys and girls. Come in and wipe people out. Chops everybody's head off and does an art project. Burns the whole youth group up. Another description of another conquest is even worse. In strife and conflict, I besieged and conquered the city. I felled 3,000 of their fighting men with the sword. I captured many troops alive. I cut off some of their arms and hands. I cut off of others their noses, ears, and extremities. I gouged out the eyes of many troops. I made one pile of the living and one of the heads. I hung their heads on trees around the city. The people in Nineveh were wicked. They were evil. They deserved judgment. But Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, is merciful and gracious. He graciously warns them and they respond. Let's talk about the repentance for a moment. What do I mean when I say that the Ninevites repented? Did they repent? There's debate. The commentators and the scholars will talk about it. Some say they repented. Jesus said they repented. So I'm going to go with Jesus on this one. He's always right. Always right. Luke 11:32. Jesus says, The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So we can't argue that they did not repent because Jesus said that they repented. And Jesus is always right. But what did Jesus mean when he said that Nineveh repented? I think Jesus meant what the book of Jonah means. The Ninevites repented. They turned from evil and violence. They believed the threat from Yahweh was real. However, I don't think we can say that this was the greatest revival ever. There is no indication in the text that they came to saving faith in Yahweh. There is no evidence that the men were circumcised and became full-fledged members of the Israelite covenant community. But they did stop their evil ways for a period of time. It does not say that they were pardoned. It does not say that they were forgiven. It just says that the Lord, that they turned and then that the Lord turned and relented from sending judgment. For them, judgment was averted. It was postponed because they responded rightly to a certain degree. And because they responded rightly to a certain degree, the Lord relented from sending judgment. That's what I think it means when it says they repented. Now look at verse 10. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So the Ninevites turned and they trusted in Jonah's message, so God relented. What's interesting here is that the same words there for turn and relent in verses 8 through 10 are the same word in Hebrew. It's used four times here, the word shuv. It has the idea, has this emotional element that's tied to the action. It's being sorry and regretting what you've done, but then being moved. There's this change of mind. There's this emotional element of, ah, I can't believe what I did, but now I'm going to to move and repent and turn from that. And when it says that Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, relented, 
it means that there was an emotional element with him. As he saw them turning, the Lord too was moved with compassion and mercy towards these wicked Ninevites. Understand this. Our hope is never in the sincerity of our repentance, but in the nature of our God. Our hope is not in how sincere we repent. Our hope is in the nature and the character of our God. He is merciful. He is compassionate. We need to be 100% sincere in our repentance, but ultimately it is the character of our God that moves him and not our sincerity alone. It's who he is. His character moves him to forgive. He is loving. He is gracious. He is merciful. He is compassionate. Do we need to be sincere when we repent? Absolutely. But that is not my hope. How sincere am I when I say I'm sorry? My hope is that when I am sincere, my hope is that we serve a God. I serve a God who is compassionate and merciful and gracious to sinners like you. And like me, Jack Miller, a deceased pastor, said, God will not, he cannot stay away from repentant sinners. When you repent and say, God, I'm sorry, God isn't sitting there like a judge and saying, I need more. I need you to really wallow this time. When you say, God, I'm sorry. No sooner do you look over your shoulder and he's there. God cannot, God will not stay away from repentant sinners. He is moved to compassion and mercy because you know what? It's who he is. Jonah repented and trusted for a while and the Lord relented and forgave him. Chapter 4, we'll see Jonah is back to his stubborn ways. The Ninevites repented and trusted for a while, and the Lord relented. But some 100 years later, God would send the prophet Nahum to prophesy against Nineveh, and they wouldn't respond appropriately. God's judgment would come down on them. And we're going to begin a new series in the, the prophet Nahum in a few weeks. And it's a dark grisly, doom and gloom kind of book. But for here in Jonah, the Ninevites turned. Not so a hundred years later with the prophet Nahum. The Ninevites repented, not full-fledged faith in Yahweh, followed by circumcision and inclusion into the covenant community of Israel, but they responded in such a way that the Lord was moved to relent from sending judgment. As I mentioned, a lot of scholars debate the repentance of Nineveh, but they miss the point. Don't get caught up in the debate whether Nineveh truly repented or not. The point of Jonah chapter 3 is, have you repented? Are you living a lifestyle of continual repentance? That's the point of Jonah. Have you repented? Are you daily saying, God, forgive me, and looking and running to Jesus and rehearsing the gospel? That's the point of Jonah 3. So keep turning. 
Keep turning from sin. Keep trusting in Jesus. The Christian life is a life of continually turning from sin and turning to Jesus and trusting in all the gospel promises found in God's word. That is the normal Christian life. Turning from sin to Jesus daily and trusting in all that God is for us in Jesus daily. Something greater than Jonah came. Someone greater than Jonah came. And that someone is here. His name is Jesus. And he came because this world was messed up. He came because this world was broken. Because of what happened in the third chapter of the first book of the Bible. With our first parents, Adam and Eve, God said, you know what? You can eat from any tree you want to in the garden. I mean, that was grace. Have at it. You like apples, Adam? Eat 80 apples a day if you want to. I don't care. Eat from anything you want to, Adam. Eat from anything you want to, Eve. But do not touch this tree. Do not eat from the tree, the fruit from this tree. And then things changed. Because a talking snake mysteriously showed up and started asking questions. And everything has been downhill since then. And that's why the greater Jonah had to come. That's why Jesus came. To fix us because we're broken. To save us because we are messed up. And that's what these elements represent here today. The broken bloody body of Jesus, the greater Jonah, who took our punishment on the cross and spent three days not in the belly of a fish, but three days in the grave. But God raised him from the dead. He is alive and he is here right now. Right now. He's he's here in Grace Baptist Church right now. And he is gracious and he is compassionate to sinners like you and like me. We are encouraged by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 not to take the Lord's Supper or communion in an unworthy manner. The way to not take communion in an unworthy manner is to recognize how unworthy you are. If you can come to this table today and say, I am not worthy, then you can take the elements in a way that honors Jesus. Thomas Watson, who I mentioned earlier, gives us wise counsel here. He says, the repenting sinner can go to God with boldness in prayer and look upon him not as a judge, but as a father. He is born of God and is heir to a kingdom. He is encircled with promises. He no sooner shakes the tree of the promise, but some fruit falls. In the gospel, we shake the tree of God's promises and fruit falls. Let's take a moment and shake the book of God's promises and listen to the fruit that falls. 1 John 1, 8 through 10. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. 
Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 23. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. We can enter the holy of holies now by the new and living way. Jesus, we can draw near in full assurance of faith. So let's hold fast to our confession of hope. And that is that God will not and he cannot stay away from repentant sinners. Because of the gospel, he is drawn to sinners when they say, God, Please forgive me. He loves to forgive you. He delights in forgiving you. Why? Because it puts the spotlight on his son and what his son did to bring you to him. Luther's last words were scribbled on a piece of paper and he wrote, we are beggars. This is true. His last words were that we are beggars. It's true. It's who we are. We are beggars who have nothing in this world. But we go to a God who says, come in, smelly, dirty, hungry beggar. And here is a feast laid before you in the gospel. Eat up, drink up. And when you do, eat up and drink up. And when you're satisfied, just say, ah, and that gives him glory. We are beggars. We come to this table today as beggars. But God lays this feast out for us. That we might fellowship with him. Let's take a moment. All of us to repent and say, God, forgive me. Some of you maybe need to do it for the first time. You're not a Christian. You've never felt remorse for your sin. You've never felt the sting of that You've broken God's commandments and maybe God's working in your heart now. You need to say, God, please forgive me. I'm selfish. I've lived for myself. I've worshiped myself. I've spurned your ways. I've broken your commandments. I deserve to be punished in hell forever, but forgive me. And I believe in Jesus. When you do that, the Bible says you're born again. You are adopted into the family of God. You are his child. Others of us are Christians. We've already done that. But we know the Christian life is a life of repentance. And so we need to just ask God to forgive us once again, which he loves to do, which he freely does. So if you got up this morning and yelled at your kids because they wouldn't put their socks on and you were rushing out the door and then you and your spouse fought on the way here and then you got out of your car and had this fake plastic smile on and said, hey, everybody, I'm doing great. God loves to forgive you of that. It brings him joy when sinners repent and cry out. Let's take a moment to do that. And then we're going to move into a time of taking the elements, a time of celebration, to celebrate the God that we serve, that we don't have to come groveling and beat ourselves on the back and spend two hours of saying, God, forgive me, God, forgive me. And at some point he finally says, oh, okay, you've twisted my arm long enough. We serve a God that when we sincerely say, God, forgive me, he says, absolutely, it's why I sent my son. 
So let's take a moment to repent and confess our sins. And then we'll move into a time of celebration that God freely forgives us. Let's do that now. God, we come to the table this morning as we come to our kitchen table, maybe, when we read your word in the morning and we confess our sins as we do at our desk at work when we lose it with a coworker, and we come to you and say, God, forgive me again. We ask you, God, to forgive us of the evil words that we say and the evil thoughts that we think and the evil actions that we do and the even scarier, the evil motives that drive what we do. Would you forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness? Thank you for your son and his perfect life. Thank you that you love and delight to forgive sinners who turn to you because it points out your son and the great sacrifice that he made for us. Thank you for sending Jesus the Messiah. In his name we pray. Amen. Our hope is that today's message empowers you by God's grace to live God's way. For more information, visit us online at gracebath.net.